What's up everybody, Travis McKenzie here and I'm back with the latest edition of the I'm Curious to Know Project, a series of daily live conversations throughout May. Today's guest is an exceptional human being, Andrew Ferentz. Andrew is a Stanley Cup champion with the Boston Bruins and he's also an incredible cyclist. I've often described him as the strongest non-professional I've ever ridden with. He's also a diligent father and husband, and his role with the National Hockey League is focused on social responsibility and providing access to hockey for those who may not have the ways or means to enjoy the sport. I'm privileged to call Andrew a friend, and I appreciate him for joining the latest edition of the show. Please enjoy. Andrew, joining us all the way from Edmonton. How are you, mate? I'm doing great. A joy. Not too many people describe it as a joy to ride with me, though. At the time, it's not a joy, um, but looking back and the memories I have are very fond. <laughs> but, uh, I'm going to tell the story of when we first met because I think that will give some context on 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 this and kind of the, our relationship with cycling. So at the time, I was still working at Lululemon and you were a Lululemon ambassador, one of our most beloved elite ambassadors. Um, You're in town. Uh, you wanted to get out and ride. I think you'd started riding a little bit more. Um, at the time, I was super fit. I was training for Ironman. I was probably, you know, at the top of top of my game as far as fitness goes. Uh, so we started riding, and then, you know, I you were you were riding pretty well, and I was like, okay, this guy's got some chops. And so I started to dial it up a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more, and um, I couldn't drop you for the life of me. That's pretty accurate, actually. That's how I remember it too. I I, uh, I was mountain biking a ton. I lived in Alberta, up in the Rocky Mountains. And so I mountain biked lots, so I'd, you know, done a little bit of like shorter stuff with the, with the road bike just for hockey. But uh, I remember bringing my road bike out there and, and looking back, just realizing how clueless I was to real riding. <laughs> and so I, I hooked up with this, um, this dude from uh, Lululemon who's just hammering on a bike. And I'm like, holy shit, I can't, like, I can't keep up with this guy. And it was yeah. just pure, like, you know, pride that I think kept me somewhat close to you, but you crushed me on that ride. That was tough. And, and I was, that was a good eye opener though, but you're actually the one who introduced me to Strava because yeah. I remember close to the end of that ride, you said you started like saying something about like, Oh, you know, just, just heads up. I'm going to hammer this stretch. And I'm like, what, what stretch? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, Oh, it's a segment, you know? So you're, you're basically my intro to King of the mountains and, and Strava segments. And, so that's when you you dropped me on that. Like there's no way I was keeping up on uh, when you, when you're hammering the home stretch down the beach. But I always love like uh, getting hooked up with people that really know what they're doing. You know, it's yeah. kind of a wake up call for like, all right, that's that's real riding. Because up to that point, you know, like you go putts around with friends and stuff like yeah. that. But. It's definitely probably the only, the last time I was able to drop you. I my my ability in cycling and fitness has gone down significantly, and yours has increased significantly. I also remember some really interesting conversations with you on that ride and afterwards over coffee, because I was really interested in the way that hockey players and explosive sport athletes trained. And you talked to me about how you wore a heart rate monitor in games, and you would assess your your data, and then you would replicate that by running stairs or running sprints or doing these short bursts of activity and then having rest. And I was really, really intrigued by that. And I know that you were super diligent with that throughout your career. Yeah, well, it was actually my intro and, and actually cycling was a bit of my intro and just getting my foot in the door with the league because I was pretty, like I was good when I was younger. I got, I got drafted high into the junior ranks, which is kind of 16 to 20 years old. And I had a good junior career, but um, I was very small, you know, for that time of hockey, you know, five foot 10. And most defensemen at that time were, you know, kind of six two, six three, and above. And so I was a very late draft pick into the NHL. 
Um, I was an eighth round pick, and there's not even eight, eight rounds of draft anymore. Like that's how, how late it was. I knew that, you know, okay, like I got my foot in the door with the draft. I got an invite to training camp. It's so easy, you know, you bring in 60, 70 guys to training camp. It's so easy to just be forgotten. You know, you're there for a couple of days. So, um, you know, really for me, I was always, I think, very self-sufficient. Like I always took care of myself. I didn't rely on somebody else to like get me ready for things, whether it was training, nutrition, kind of tactically with hockey. And so I remember, you know, that summer really thinking like, okay, like how am I going to stand out from, you know, these other 60, 70 guys, let alone steal a job. And uh, at that time, like I knew there wasn't, you know, a, a certain level of fitness you know, in, in hockey in general, I trained with a lot of other, other athletes. I knew a lot of triathletes. I knew a lot of cyclists. I knew skiers. And so I had a window into what they were doing and into their world. And then I had a, obviously a, a, a window into hockey because I was, you know, working out at the gym and seeing what other NHL guys were doing. Right. Because, you know, growing up in Edmonton, that's the one thing you're, you're surrounded by other guys that have made it already. And so I could see what they're doing and, and really kind of compare myself and, and I was always just trying to get an edge. That whole summer, I worked my butt off, you know, biked a lot, went in and smoked testing. You know, I blew everybody away on like VO2, Wingate testing, um, stuff that just sets you apart from the crowd, right? And that was, like I said, that was, that was my real first, like kind of pushing through that open door and getting a chance in the NHL. And it was a big light bulb for me because, you know, I wasn't going to grow anymore. And so I knew I had to like do something to stand out from the crowd, you know, and that, that's kind of the approach I took for the next 17 years. Like yeah. even when I was in the last couple of years of my career is, you know, all right, look around, you know, what's my competition doing? Like even this guy, my, he's on my team, but he wants my job, you know, yeah. he's in the minor leagues. He's trying to take what, what can I do that he's not? And so that's when it transitioned into, you know, recovery, sleep, nutrition, like everything, right. You know, the stuff like the heart rate monitor the stuff like trying to replicate, you know, what my body was doing during a, during a hockey game. Those are all just things that I saw. Well, you know, like some of them you come up with on your, on your own, but a lot of those I saw from other athletes, you know, I yeah. saw from other sports and I just took them and, and uh, started using them for myself. Our sport makes a ton of money, mm -hmm. but we're, you know, really far behind uh, from some of these other, other sports. Yeah. It was almost like, you almost feel bad. You know, I, I lived in Canmore and trained with a lot of these like biathletes and cross country skiers and uh, downhill skiers. And they might be in like the top 50 in the world. And they're eating like SpaghettiOs because they don't, you know, they weren't getting any funding, you know, nothing. That, and then I look at what they're doing for training and, and to try to like be as yep. best they can and shave like a half second off. And they were doing, you know, more than 98% of the whole NHL was. Yeah, that's interesting because I think, you know, I look at coming through the ranks as a triathlete and, and spending time in that sport and seeing the best in the world, you know, win Kona and make 150000 US dollars. And, you know, if you break that down per minute of activity throughout the year, it's it's tiny. So, yeah. you know, I can get that sense as well. Not to say that, you know, the thing that I think about basketball and hockey and football and all these sports where we talk about and baseball where we talk about huge salaries, obviously it's the best of the best. And there's a huge pool of athletes that come through that are trying to make it. You know, there's money in that in the, the rights to television and all of that stuff. So I think that all of that stuff is justified. But yeah, it's interesting that you had seen, call it minor sports. They're still Olympic status, but no one cares about them in, unless it's an Olympic year. Tell me about how that's translated to you now. I know that your daughter is a, uh, an elite level rugby player. Um, you talked to me before that, you know, she's in the gym and you're able to train and help her. How is your experience in taking care of those one percenters and really getting yourself prepared 
to the utmost has translated into your ability to share that with her. You know, the parent kid relationship, especially like in a gym setting or anything like that, like, I mean, you got to be, I think, really careful with it. Like there's a fine line to, to kind of walk because I want to be helpful because I obviously have, you know, a pretty good library of knowledge of, of things that I could, you know, teach her. But I also, as much as I was self-sufficient and in, in figuring things out that worked for me, and I want her to also be, you know, self-sufficient and, you know, figure stuff out and, and uh, do what works for her as well, right? She's, she's got the, the foundations of, you know, hard work and determination and stubbornness and, you know, all the, all the qualities that are kind of there to, you know, really succeed. And so I'm just trying to feed her information and ideas and, you know, try out different things and let her run with them. Right. But it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's, it's also an, a sport that I look at and you, you look around at the world of rugby, you know, what skills they're doing, stuff that they're doing in the gym. You know, I think that there's, there's plenty of potential to really set yourself apart from a lot of the rugby world, because yeah. uh, much like hockey, like there's a lot that they're not doing, you know, for, for the kids out there that, you know, want to embrace, you know, those little incremental games, like you could really set yourself apart from a lot of the rugby world. Looking from the outside in, I think you're right. I think rugby, having grown up in Australia and kind of know of the sport, it, it, it's one of those ones that does feel a little bit behind as far as high performance and training techniques and things goes. It still feels a bit like amateurish in some regards, um, you know, and it's probably improved over the last few years, but that was kind of my sense as well um, when I was growing up. You obviously had some success, uh, needless to say, in your hockey career, going on and winning Stanley Cup, um, captaining the Edmonton Oilers. Tell me about kind of some of those highlights and, you know, what it was like to to lift the cup and, and go through that with your teammates. There's there's ups and downs, right? I mean, I think that the highlights for me, if you can kind of bottle up, you know, 20 years of hockey from kind of junior to the end of my NHL career, like junior was a blast. I, I won a championship with my uh, junior team, the Portland Winterhawks. So it's the Memorial Cup, which... Yeah. Uh, is a really big, really big trophy. You know, so many teams compete for it um, across Canada at that level. And, and really you have such a short time span to actually go for it. So it's fun, you know, junior, you're all young, you're all like living away from home for the first time, just having a blast. And it was a good kind of intro into taking hockey, like really seriously, even when you go to junior and, you know, depending on the team you have, the coach you have, um, it's still kind of, you know, hockey with the boys and fun. I remember that's, that season, you know, our coach was so, so fantastic in junior and he really taught us about, you know, being professionals and sacrificing to, to actually be better and, and what the payoff is, you know, if, if you're willing to, to, to do those things. So I remember that year, you know, really buckling down and as a team, we, you know, we're very focused and, and uh, you know, it all kind of came together with a championship and just how rewarding that felt, you know, because it's one thing to sacrifice and not have a payoff. Uh, but when you, you know, you do make choices and you, you know, choose to, to do things to try to make yourself better and you're working hard and practice and doing all the extra stuff, you know, that payoff is so sweet, right? It's just, yeah. you know, it's like anything, you put a lot of work in. And, uh, but I know, you know, guys that go through whole careers and they put just as much work in, they put just as much sacrifice and they never get a payoff, right? And so transitioning in NHL, went to the playoffs a number of times, uh, went to the finals with Calgary and lost in game seven to Tampa Bay. You know, that was probably five or six years into my career. Getting to the finals is so hard, right? And then we lost in game seven. And those kind of thoughts of like, you know, man, I put so much into this. You know, here I, I you know, you could picture every workout you ever did in the summer. You could do all this stuff. And like, you're like I, I might never get back. The lowest of low feelings. And and so when I did get back, you know, a few years later in 2011 with, with Boston, that's 12 years into my career. All right, here's my second chance. 
right? And when I was in Calgary, I actually played with, I played with a guy that went to the finals three times and lost three times. So never won. So, you know, you start thinking about like how few the opportunities you have and, and all right, like I've been there once, I'm an older guy now, how can I share my experiences with younger guys to make sure that some of the same mistakes that we made as, as a group in Calgary, like we could, we can improve on. So it was a much more of a leadership role and a, and a teacher role, you know, even simple things like, you know, how to, how to sleep at night, you know, because you have so many thoughts running through your head and, you know, talking about, you know, a good sleep routine and, and a good recovery routine, you know, by that point, you know, I had, I had bought my own Normatec, you know, the leg yeah. compressions, I bought my own complex unit, like muscle stim, literally everything, you know, to eke out like, like anything. Once again, you know, we got to game seven of the finals with Boston. So it was a bit of a, you know, replay. And I was like, some of the biggest thoughts in my head was like, yeah, you want to win it. But like, it's that fear of like, what if I don't like, mm-hmm. you know, this could be it. Right. And so my parents came the first time to, to when I was with Calgary, they came and watched in Tampa Bay uh, game seven. My, my uh, wife came. So I think it was just the three of them that came to watch. Oh, my sister might've came too. Uh, but I just remember like how awful that feeling was like coming out after you lose and you know like they feel bad you feel bad like yeah, I just want to see anybody I don't want to talk to anybody um and so when we we made it back uh, with, with with Boston um and going to Vancouver like I think my parents felt the same way because I called them and they're like yeah no no worries like we'll just we'll just watch on TV you know like we tried this once before honestly it was like one less thing to have to think about uh, my wife came she was the only one that, that, that came to the game but um, like the kids didn't even come because I was just like, I didn't want any of that, like the what ifs kind of running through my head. Um, so I just, yeah, I remember that game being super dialed in. You kind of, everything's just kind of a blur, you know, cause you're, you're locking out all those distractions. We, we won the game handily, won four, nothing. And the last, like probably three minutes of the game, like after we scored our fourth goal, like we're like, all right, like this is happening. Like Got this it, is yeah. ours for sure. And it wasn't until that point that you really let yourself like believe like, Oh my God, like this is, this is a real, like a real life thing. This isn't like a fairy tale. Right. Cause you watch it on TV and it's like a mythical creature. Right. It all gets very real, very quick. And the thing about playoffs too, I think is you learn how to really suppress your emotions. You know, it's that kind of cliche of, you know, not getting too high, not getting too low and, you know, best of seven series and you play four rounds. Like, there's yeah. plenty of chance to go up and down and up and down. Right. So I think you practice almost being like, yeah, I mean, it's a negative term, but like a sociopath, right? Like you don't want to feel anything like yeah. after I lose a game, after I win a game, whatever, I just want to be even keel. And so you really get good at it. You know, it's not good for your mental health. I don't think, but you know, when it, when you're finally in those last three minutes and you realize you're going to win, I think all those bottled up emotions just like, yeah, come barreling out right and plus you know it's your childhood dream right so like man i was like uncontrollable right like you're you're happy you're crying you're just looking around and then all your buddies are going through the same thing right so yeah it's a crazy experience just those first probably like 20 minutes the buzzer going winning piling on like getting presented the trophy yeah it's like uh you're watching a little movie of you know what you dreamt it all would be and it didn't let it didn't let me down right that's very cool. I've always wondered in that setting, in that professional sports setting, there's so much pomp and circumstance around the victory and the handing over of the trophy and it's all on camera. And and then there's the private moment back in the locker room where there's no more cameras, there's no more people. It's just the core group of guys and girls and the people that are directly involved. You know, actually, well, the, the way the NHL does it, 
we don't really get that until I think, well, we got it on the plane ride home or the bus ride, bus ride, plane ride, because, um, you know, they present you the trophy on the ice and, you know, all the media is there. And yeah, like you said, the pomp and circumstance of it all, uh, which is fine. I was <laughs> still yeah. a blast. And then the locker room, actually all the families are there too. Right. And so um, it's jammed, you know, like there's, you, you, you can't even move around and it's still like very raw and am- amazing. Like it was, it's not like, I was like hoping that the families could get out of there because it was actually probably more special because you know you spend you spend enough time with the boys it's and uh, just to see the dads and the moms and anybody who who was able to make the game like it was actually probably you know, got, it wasn't probably it was for sure like more enjoyable just seeing like everybody else react right because as much as it is about you know the players like man like you think about like how many miles the dads and moms drove to practices like all over the countryside right just to you know, get their kids to that level and, you know, the wise, what they do, you know, when you're off on all these road trips and really having a selfish career, right? Like, so it was pretty cool just being able to share it with all of them as well, because that was, you know, really the only time you get to see that whole group, you know, all in one setting, you know, yeah. Once we leave the rink, you get the, the moment in the Boston on the plane and, you know, that's when you just turn into just like teenagers, right? You're just a bunch of idiots drinking the plane dry and, and laughing and taking pictures and just kind of giddy level, you know, a thousand. It's, uh, it was pretty amazing. Now you talk about the parents and I know that your work with the NHL is, is very, very important. One thing I've always kind of thought of and, and, and learned about hockey is that it's very much a, you know, a, a privileged sport. You have to kind of have to have money to be able to get into it. You know, you've got the rink time and the equipment and the travel and the, all of those things. And I know that part of your role is very much providing access to people who traditionally may not have access to hockey. Yeah. So, well, I mean, my role is, I have the longest title ever. So I'm the director of social impact, growth, and legislative affairs at the NHL. So um, our department is kind of all that. Like we do government work. We help try to grow the game. And then all the social programs that that, uh, the NHL does. So it's very wide ranging but specific to attracting people to the game. We have some other people working on the on-ice side um, with learn to play, and like you say, subsidizing equipment and yeah. trying to get as many kids to, to just have um, the ability to, to get on the ice and try the game. Uh, but the majority of my stuff around that uh, is, is I'm really focusing on street hockey. And, uh, you know, for me and for pro- probably every guy that has played in the NHL, like we actually play a ton of street hockey, you know, in the, in the in the back alleys or on your driveway or um, in a proper league, you really learn your skills. And you, you know, that's where you get your, your hand eye coordination. And, you know, like you said, it's hard to find ice sometimes, and yeah. especially the city you live in, but man, you can always just grab a stick and go out and go in your basement and take shots or mess around with your, your, your neighborhood. So, um, so I'm, I'm very bullish on, on, you know, embracing street hockey as the best way to introduce as many people to a really great experience with hockey. If you, if you think about it, like we're not like a, premiership soccer model where we're trying to develop you know professional players you know there's not a financial incentive for us to have youth academies and just develop elite players and and, you know then we could sell them off for millions like it's just not it's a different model so our incentive is to create fans and and to create people that have a positive affinity for the game so really for me it's about introducing people to the sport but just giving people a very good experience with the sport Right. And whether that's coming to a game and having an extremely positive experience of watching people play and the atmosphere and the music and the vibe you get from being at a game, uh, whether that's, yeah, trying ice hockey, you know, for the first time and getting that sensation of gliding and, you know, playing the game 
or you know just having a great experience in, in with uh, street hockey and so um that's been a big um focus of mine and, and developing a uh you know legitimate um, opportunity around street make it fun um if you can if you could picture you know what and one basketball did for for you know basketball and that feeling that it brought you know i think it legitimately changed the nba um that's kind of how i see um the opportunities around street is is to really you know get away from i think some of the traditional feelings around hockey and, and you know open up a whole nother can of worms with with the experience that you could have with you know a really great form of the sport that you know that all of us enjoyed you know as, as kids one of my first projects that you know we started putting in the ground over the last year uh, was multi-sport nets and so you know if you walk around new york or chicago or any big city or you know any city in the world or the schoolyards you know you're going to see basketball hoops everywhere you know because yeah. they're easy to install it's just you know there and that's one of the draws of basketball, right? All I need is a ball and there's a hoop, you know, at every corner basically. And so I worked uh, closely with a company called Compan. They're a playground company. And we developed a, a, basketball, a new basketball hoop that has a hockey, a street hockey net built in at the base of it. And so it's a standalone unit that now, you know, you can play basketball just like you normally would on the blacktop, uh, but you could also play street soccer, you know, futsal or street hockey, but you're all in one spot, right? So it's about utilizing you know, the spaces within our cities and schoolyards to, you know, serve multiple sports and, and uh, street hockey obviously being one of them. I love the, the comment you made about making fans uh, of the of the communities and, and people that you visit. What are some of the initiatives that you've put in place there? I know that you did the trip to India, which I think was really impactful. You know, and I think about, you know, the characters within the game and making it relatable to, to, to both genders. So having, you know, uh, creating fans out of women who can support and look up to women hockey players. So tell me about some of those kind of initiatives or your thoughts around that type of idea. Well, women's hockey is like much, much like I'm bullish on street. I mean, women's hockey has been the biggest growth sector for hockey, like by far, it's not even close. It's actually one specifically initiative that we, that we helped uh, is my friend, Haley Wickenheiser. Um, she's a Canadian legend, you know, uh, multiple Olympian um, actually in winter and summer, she played softball as well. Uh, and she's a doctor. I mean, talk about an overachiever. She's uh, she's pretty great. She's yeah. got this uh, tournament that she runs in a couple different cities called Wickfest concept that she put together uh, herself with her team. And it's all about running a really amazing experience for female hockey players. And so I say experience because, you know, typically when you think about a tournament or a hockey tournament, it's, you know, teams, you show up, you play games, somebody gets the trophy at the end and yeehaw, right? Like what she was doing was developing a whole experience around you know, bringing female hockey players in for a tournament um, over a course of a weekend. But within that tournament, there was also um, a ton of off-ice activities. And so she would uh, tap into, you know, some of the other uh, Olympians that she knew and have, you know, the ability to sign up for these workshops. So you could go and do a wrestling session with, um, you know, Erica Weave, who, who's a, a Canadian uh, Olympian uh, in wrestling. Um, you could do a, a nutrition workshop, you know, for, for parents and kids, you could do, you know, a, you know, all these different kind of categories she had going on where you could try different sports, you know, you could learn about, um, you know, they had these empowerment sessions. And so as a, as a participant, yeah, I'm going for hockey and I'm playing these games and I'm having, you know, fun with all my friends, but I'm also interacting with, you know, the other teams that I'm playing against uh, through these workshops and through these office activities. Uh, she had through like this massive opening party where there was a dance, you're mixing and mingling with all these other teams, you're showing up and just having like this 
this incredible weekend. So at the NHL, like we supported that um, specifically and hope to kind of grow a template, that, a template like that and also learn from it and, and try to influence, you know, some of the male, you know, hockey tournaments that go on that, you know, don't look at the whole picture, that whole holistic experience of not just, you know, strapping on the skates and trying to win, but developing new friendships and, and you know, learning new skills and, even for the parents, like not just going and, you know, freezing your butt off in the stands, but, you know, maybe taking in, you know, three or four of these sessions off the ice that you could learn something about, you know, how to feed your kids or how to train or, you know, different, uh, different sports that they might be interested in. So it was really eye-opening, you know, just, you know, how innovative some of the people in, in, in the female space are and, and how much, you know, traditional hockey can learn from, from what they're doing. Yeah, what a great initiative. That sounds amazing. Like I could have, I was just picturing myself as a kid and like going to things like that would be incredible and having those experiences and meeting those people, um, you know, and having those mentors or those people to look up to and, and admire and, and follow after would be really fun. Now, I know that, uh, you know, you talked, we talked about your cycling. We talked about how you use that as, as a tool when you were training and you were still competing. I know you, you know, you still love the bike. You've still spent a lot of time on it. You've, you've found a love for Zwift. Tell me about, you know, how you, how that now plays a part in your, in your life. Well, it plays probably like three, four hours a day of my life. <laughs> so it's part of my routine. Like even this morning, like I usually wake up at about, you know, 4.45, 5, um, especially, you know, this time of year, the sunrise is pretty early up here in Edmonton. So I'm usually on the bike around, you know, 5.30, 5.45 uh, and get a few hours in. Obviously, Strava was great. You know, going after KOMs has, has been fun the last few years and, and really pushing. That's I think it gives me that, you know, that thing to shoot for and that competitive competitiveness. I've really gotten into a thing called Wanderer, which is, which is just an extension of, of Strava and it rewards you for going on only new roads. Right. So I've been exploring the city like crazy. So, uh, you know, my, my rides look crazy now because they're all over the place, but, uh, you know, trying to knock down every road in Edmonton, I think I'm at like, I'm over 40% now. So yeah, uh, New York, I think I've gotten over 50%. I found out about that because of you. I think I saw you post somewhere or you might've tweeted something about it. And then I signed up for it. It makes it fun. You know, like I've never been one for just doing the same old loop. Like that's yeah. boring to me. So uh, it's been fun. You know, so I've been into that and then uh, signing up for the odd race, you know, like I think it's, you know, it's such a great sport. It, it's uh, as much as it did for me physically and, and giving me an edge physically, I think the mental side of it, you know, gave me a, even a greater edge against people I played against people that I was competing with. I've never even been close to like the amount of like darkness I've felt on a bike, you know, during a hockey game, you know, after I retired, I went and did uh, a seven day oat route, you know, through, uh, through Colorado. And, you know, basically every day is like a mountain stage of, you know, of a grand tour. Yeah. Like it just absolutely buried me, you know, it was race pace and you're just trying to, you know, hang on to somebody's wheel and go up these giant mountains and like, yeah, like hockey's hard but it doesn't even come close, you know? So I could be in, you know, triple overtime of a, at the end of the season of the you know, Stanley cup finals. And I could kind of go back to some of those like rides that I've had and be like, Oh, it's, it's not so bad. You know, yeah. well, meanwhile, like the guys around you are just dying. <laughs> you know, like, so I think, you know, cycling for me, I've always appreciated that side of it, you know, just how tough uh, mentally, you know, the riders are and people at the top of their game are, and, and uh, you know, just how beneficial it is, I think for life, right? Like, you know, I think like there's not a lot that rattles me, you know, that gets me kind of thrown off. And I think that a, a large part of that is, you know, training, you know, training your, that resiliency. And um, 
I'm actually, I just started a book. I'm not, I'm only like a couple chapters in, but you know, called Endure. Is it Alex Hutchinson? Alex Hutchinson yeah. 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 So I just started that and I, I mean, only like just starting it, but I, I know it's going to, you know, they're preaching to the choir because I think that side of, you know, building that resiliency and, and taking yourself to, you know, some really dark places, but at training yourself to, so that your brain kind of says, ah, it's no big deal. I was training for Steamboat Gravel last year, the 140 mile uh, gravel race in Steamboat Springs. Uh, and I listened to it as an audio book on some of my, you know, a couple of my long rides last, last year. Um, so I'll have to go back and, and read it again and, and listen again to, to reabsorb it. But yeah, it's a great book. You're going to love it. And you look around too, like the Hall of Fame guys and, you know, the, the best players I've ever played with, they were all pretty, like even keel. Like none of them were like the guys that were like all amped up and like, you know, four Red Bulls before the game or anything like that. Like they were all pretty just cerebral people that just, yeah. I think, you know, that's a common theme. I think that you see around a lot of really top athletes is that the brains are different, you know, and yeah. uh, they don't, they, they don't kind of get into that red zone too much. I'm trying to remember someone described it the other day perfectly in one of these interviews I had. Um, and they just said, you know, athletes just live a pretty simple life when they're at the top of the sport. They don't need too much. You know, you need, uh, you know, time to train, you need time to recover, you need t- time to fuel your body. And outside of that, like not much else is needed. It's, I was actually always shocked, you know, when, when I had, a, you know, you'd, you'd have certain teammates or you see, see people that, you know, are just a hot mess, you know, like mentally. And it, I was always shocked that they, they actually made it. You know, you know yeah. not many of them last that long, but. Yeah, I think for, you know, uh, that actually reminds me of, some, you know, when I was growing up and I was, you know, an Aussie rules player and I, you know, had ambitions of making it um, as a professional footy player and kind of got as far as I could and played, you know, semi-professional and what have you. And I think that's what held me up a little bit as well was that mentality of, it, of you know, having a bad game and then you dwell on it for days and days and days at a time or you're critical on yourself or you're like, you like, you all of a sudden become nervous or scared about the competitive element of the sport. Um, and I've seen that in triathletes and seen that in cyclists and I've seen that in endurance sports as well where uh, there's these people who are um, exponentially fitter and faster and stronger than you uh, in training and then it gets to a competition or a race or a game uh, and they crumble under that pressure and that anxiety that in most cases they put on themselves. I used to harp on that to uh, the young guys that I played with all the time. It was, are you the person that's scared to lose? Or are you the person that's super excited to win? I can tell, like, you know, if you're scared to lose, like, you obviously play like that and, and it comes across very apparently. And the other thing I always hated was usually young younger players, but, you know, they would you know, come off a, a shift of hockey and apologize for something they did. And I always like was very blunt with it because it just pissed me off. Like, I was just like, like, don't apologize. Like, I'm never going to apologize for something that I did on the ice. Unless you're, you know, not putting in like the effort, you know, you could apologize for that. But like, if you make a mistake, get over yeah. it. Like, <laughs> I don't want to hear your apology. I don't want to talk about it. And I think yeah. there's that side of it too, right? Where things happen, right? Like, yeah, like, yeah, if you got went out and got drunk the night before and you're hung over and you're playing horribly yeah apologize for that if you're just putting in an honest effort mistakes happen as i've gotten older the, the better i've gotten um at that but then the physicality and the physical side of it doesn't match anymore but it's in everything man it's yeah. in business it's in yeah. like whatever you're doing parenting you know second guessing yourself oh I'm like, you know, like especially parenting right the like kids are young like just like you're, you're fine you're doing fine love it now i have a couple of fun questions for you um we've spent a quite a bit of time together on bikes we've done some amazing trips together we've stayed in some great places uh one highlight that i definitely have riding from twin farms in vermont and making our way to ben and jerry's where we ordered the vermontster 
you can give the you can give the details on the Vermonster and then uh, and then jumping on the bike and riding home. So if you're not from Vermont, you probably don't even understand that. It's actually a big ride. That was a 200k ride, right? Yeah, that was 200k's. Yeah. Yeah. So 200 kilometers. So and over whatever mountain range is there. Uh, but so it was a pretty big climb to get there. The 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 Vermonster is was it 20 scoops? I think it's I think. 20 scoops of ice cream. 20 scoops of ice cream and all the toppings like hot fudge, uh, whipped cream, like candies, like the whole yeah. the whole meal deal. Yeah. yeah, we finished. We finished it. I think. I think we got like most of the way through, and then we put it in the car for the return journey and took it oh, back. Okay. Stuff. I actually felt amazing for the first probably 45 minutes of the the return journey because I think the sugar high was probably yeah. like. Yeah, like I was like, let's go. <laughs> and then I remember, I think we actually went for a KOM on one of the climbs on, on the return journey, which is, if you yeah. think about it, just ridiculous. But we did okay. Like, I think we actually, we pushed it pretty good. And then did you take the wagon after the climb? I think. Way out. So my, my dad's bike broke on the way out. Ah, yeah, yeah. So I put the bike in the back of the car and drove for like the last 40 Ks of the outward journey. And then he went, he jumped in the car on the way back and I did the return journey right. so I did the full 200 Ks, but I will never forget that first hour of that return when you're so hyped up and amped up on the sugar, <laughs> it was almost an immediate crash. And I think we all kind of looked at each other and you've got like this, you know, you're super bloated and like sweating. <laughs> and like, oh my goodness, what have we just done for ourselves? At the end of the day, like we're talking about it, right? <laughs> what a great memory. Like what else do you have? You know, other than like fun adventures like that. That was, a blast, man. I love it. Mate, this has been awesome. I feel like there's probably a million other things we could talk about, but we're we're almost out of time here. And I want to ask you a couple of questions here that I ask every day. I know you're going to give some really thoughtful answers, so I'm going to going to launch into that. First question, what's one thing that's changed during this isolation period that you want to keep once we go back to whatever the new normal is? Uh, I started making uh, sourdough bread. So, and that sounds like a very simple answer, but it's actually, I used to spend a lot more time in the kitchen, like baking and doing like more complex recipes. And I think, you know, once you have kids, you just kind of like, all right, let's just get some food on the table. But I I really enjoy knocking off some, you know, quality hours in the kitchen and going and getting the ingredients at the store and look, trying something like completely different. So I've actually done a few, I've been making sourdough a lot. Like I got my starter and I got the whole thing. So uh, I've gotten quite good at that, but I've been making a lot more uh, Indian food. So when I say bread, I mean like all food and, and more complex dishes. You know, I burn a lot of calories, but I eat a lot of calories too. It's uh, yeah. and I like to like to make it worthwhile. Second question: What's one thing you thought was important before isolation and before COVID that you're happy to leave in the past? Uh, as much as I hate Zoom and like all the virtual meetings, it gets old. I love seeing everybody just being like a little bit more authentic. The kids running through the background, people's, you know, a little bit scruffier, the hair's not done, wearing a hat, you know, they got their t-shirt on, especially like at an, like an executive level. Yeah. Like it's so refreshing. And I, and I really like the whole celebrity culture, just BS that's been out there, like in our society for the last few years, like I've always hated it. I just recoil against it. Um, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that the pendulum is swinging, you know, pretty far back towards um, the value of just being authentic, be you. And I think, you know, I've seen a lot more of that. And I just hope that it stays. And I hope that it's a, a thing that people embrace and, and really value. I agree. I, I love that. I, I love that answer. I, I think it's amazing to be able to just jump on this call. You know, we've been, I've been trying to get this going with you for three years. And it's like, 
doesn't work. We're not in the same place at the same time, but the ability to just like jump on the call and, you know, have this conversation is amazing and it wouldn't have happened before. So third and final question, what's been your most memorable moment of joy during this lockdown isolation period? These aren't easy questions, are they? We've gotten into a really good routine. I mean, my youngest daughter is into soccer and, you know, playing basketball and all this stuff. The older one's obviously playing a lot of rugby and I'm spending tons of time with her in the gym. So like, yeah, spending time with the kids is great, but like a single moment, you know, we're, we're playing like 21, um, you know, like some basketball out, uh, on some nights and, you know, doing stuff like that as a family, it's not like, it's not like we never did it before, but yeah, it's just been so much more quality time where nobody's got anything to rush off to and nobody's driving somebody across town to, you know, make an appointment or make a practice or we're doing the same, some of the same stuff that we used to do, but just now without a pressure of having to be done by a certain time, it can naturally finish as opposed to, all right, like, let's wrap it up. We got to go. Yeah. it's That's awesome. I, yeah. It seems like a realization of what's important and realization of how much joy those simple activities bring you. You know, everybody thinks like how scheduled you are for work. You know, I got my work calendar and I got all, you know, the calendar just digging off like, oh, you got this in 15 minutes, you got that in 15 minutes. Like there's still some scheduling, right? But, you know, not nearly as much as there used to be. And and you start to realize just really how much just free time there wasn't in, in day-to-day life. And and that's different, you know, from how I grew up. Right? You know, I remember growing up in open-ended hours, mm. you know, of like going making forts in the back forest, you know, for like five hours, you know, or like going to my buddies and you know playing in the uh, playing in the woods or in the back pipeline or riding bikes or whatever it is for hours yeah you know and not having to you know okay you got an hour go make the most of your time with your buddy and so you know i remember that and i think that you know i i told you before when we were speaking earlier about my youngest daughter who she just like she's got her little cabal of friends that they go biking and they you know they keep the distance and this and that but they're gone for like six hours that's really cool Mate, this has been great to reminisce a little. It's been great to hear some stories from you that I haven't heard before uh, and talk about some of the, the glory days and uh, reminisce on our adventures together. And it's always a joy to to see your beautiful face and your beautiful hair. So I can't wait to see you again, buddy. Yeah, we're going to get on the road, just yeah. even just to hang. It'll be great. Love it. Thanks, mate. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Andrew. It was a lot of fun hearing some great stories from your time in hockey and your approach to fatherhood and post-hockey career. I can't wait for more miles together in the future. Thank you all for joining me. It means a lot and I can't wait to bring you more entertaining conversations over the final week of May. Stay tuned here on the Invoice podcast or catch the live conversations every day at 3.30pm Eastern on the Invoice Facebook page. I'm Travis McKenzie and this is the Invoice podcast.